950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. Well, today we're joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics, as we'll be talking about the new tax bill that was passed in the Minnesota House, as well as a new bill that would provide a, a big investment into the environment for Minnesota in terms of protecting us from polluting chemicals. And then we will also talk about a dust up that happened between the DFL press area and a reporter for MinPost and why a number of media organizations in town wrote a letter to the House DFL decrying the treatment of Callahan. So we'll get into all three of those articles today. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Good to have you back. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So House Democrats released their tax package yesterday, which proposes a modest one-time tax rebate check for a number of Minnesotans. It also exempts some Minnesotans from their taxes, uh, from their income taxes on Social Security benefits. And we also could have a new tax bracket for the wealthiest Minnesotans. So I guess my uh, First question for you, Patrick, is there any big surprises from this DFL tax budget right now? I suppose maybe a little bit of surprise on those rebate checks, but overall, what were your thoughts? Any big surprises from what we saw revealed by the House DFL? You know, I, I kind of figured that the House DFL would offer the most uh, progressive, egalitarian tax bill out of the, of the, the three um, pillars here, the Senate and, and Governor Tim Walls. Uh, the taxes chair, Aisha Gomez, is uh, one of the most uh, progressive uh, House members. Uh, she's also extremely smart on policy and and effective, and want and ultimately wants to make government work. But I don't. I'm not surprised at the philosophy underlying uh, her tax package, um, which is really tilted toward working people. Um, and it's tax increase on the rich, uh, which will provide quite a bit of new revenue. Uh, very rich. It's um, it's only about twenty four thousand uh, Minnesotans, and uh, it's for for a couple. It's a, it's more than a million dollars. There's a new a new ten percent uh, and, and change tax bracket. Uh, they out of a political imperative, they are. Uh, you won't have to pay a tax on your Social Security benefits if you make less than $100,000. Uh, I, I know that uh, this is not a favored policy of progressive Democrats. Um, actually, I, I think there's fairly widespread consensus amongst Democrats, and even some Republicans, this is a bad policy. But they had a, a number of members who ran on this. Um, it, it was uh, Governor Walls was sort of backed into, uh, into a corner on this by Republicans um, uh, last year, and and then you had Democrats running on it. So it just was, uh, th- there's a perception that uh, they have to do something on Social Security benefits. Um, and so uh, Gomez, uh, Chair Gomez has tilted it um, away from the, the wealthiest uh, Social Security benefits. Uh, beneficiaries will not get uh, this benefit, um, but it's still there, and it's it's big, it's expensive, and it gets more expensive every year. The rebates are much lower, um, certainly than Governor Walls proposed, um, and uh, and there's some other uh, provisions in there, uh, the child tax credit, and uh, and uh, a pretty good, um, I think, um, addition to uh, the local government aid that's going to help people's uh, local property taxes. There's a property tax 
expansion of the property tax uh, renters rebate. So, I mean, this is uh, this is Aisha Gomez's uh, political uh, ph- philosophical agenda. Um, although, sort of, um, uh, although there's the, the political realities have also entered in uh, to a degree. Um, but it's it's kind of an opening gambit. Um, it's it's the first bill we've seen. Um, and so the Senate's going to be offering their own version. Uh, and there's another piece of this that's interesting. Uh, usually what happens is cities and, and counties, the local government, they come to the, the taxes committee and they, they need, they say they want to increase their sales tax a little bit so that they can build a park or a community center or what have you. Uh, this year it seems to be a number are doing uh, public safety and jails and that kind of thing. They have to get approval from the legislature, then they get approval from their voters for these sales tax increases. Chair Gomez has said, we're not doing that. Um, She doesn't think that this is a good way to fund uh, local government and um, because it really discriminates against communities that uh, don't really have a good retail base, Um, whereas it's great for, um, for Bloomington. Because um, they get it, people who don't even live in Bloomington that shop at the mall and they collect all this tax. So, uh, but again, this is kind of an opening move here. Uh, I don't expect that to stand up. I think that the the on the Senate side, at least in committee, they've uh, happily uh, taken all. They're going to take all those uh, local sales tax increases. Um, but that's just one of of what of a few uh, just. Uh, differences I think we're going to find between the House and Senate version. I think the, I think the Senate version is going to be a uh, more moderate uh, bill. It'll come out in the next few days. Yeah, let's dive into some of those more areas in the Senate bill where you expect there could be some differences. Is there any chatter about where there could be some major differences between the Senate and the House? And I suppose we have to, of course, factor in uh, Governor Tim Walls as well, because naturally you would think, well, they're all three DFLers, so they're just automatically going to agree on something and come together on a bill and quickly pass something. But even when you have unified control, things can be a lot more complicated than that. So are we hearing any chatter on where there might be some differences between the House and the Senate? The the Senate Republicans, uh, excuse me, Senate Democrats have a have a one vote majority, so they're a lot more um, anxious about appealing to uh, swing voters and, and winning those swing districts. So I, I expect that they're going to uh, offer a, a much more robust rebate, uh, and I think Walls, Governor Walls, will probably uh, would want to go along with that. I think that if people were to uh, you know, if a, a couple were uh, to, to have a $550 rebate, it seems kind of um, a little um, minuscule compared to the 2000 that Walt had talked about during the campaign. Um, and I think it would make them look kind of politically weak uh, if the rebate is that small. Um, on, the, on the Social Security uh, benefits uh, tax cut, uh, the, there's uh, some, some key... Uh, Senate Democrats who have favored uh, a, a total uh, exemption of your of your Social Security benefits from state tax. Uh, I don't know that they're going to go that far. They may they may uh, propose that um, as kind of an opening gambit, um, but that would be another difference. They want to do the full thing, uh, whereas uh, Chair Gomez on the House side they they've capped it at folks who make a hundred thousand. Um, I think that that local sales tax issue I mentioned, I think the, the Senate Democrats will agree that, 
to their uh, all the local communities that want to increase their sales taxes. I think they'll they'll want to uh, give the the voters in those communities the option to do that. So I, I expect there's going to be some differences. I think it's going to be a more um, a uh, a friendlier bill that's on the Senate side to I guess to ideological moderates and to business. Speaking with Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to Minnesota Reformer for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. I want to talk about another piece of news from the state legislature, and this also comes from the DFL-controlled state house, as they are going to be making a $670 million investment into the environment and natural resources protection, as this largely has to do uh, with these PFAS chemicals that were used by 3M back in the 1940s. They're kind of called like forever chemicals and they've impacted a number of communities in the East Metro. And this bill will do a lot towards trying to, well, help people well, clean up from well, the damage that these chemicals have caused. And uh, this bill could be a very significant investment in the environment. In fact, uh, some DFLers are calling it the most significant investment in environmental and natural resource protection in years that we've seen in Minnesota. So, Patrick, I'm uh, curious why this is such a significant investment we're seeing uh, in the environment right now. And what specific issues does this bill address? Yeah, the one that we were focused on was the, the PFAS that you mentioned. The, this is the class of chemicals that 3M invented has been manufacturing, still manufacturers. Uh, and um, we at the Reformer uh, published a couple stories in December about how uh, 3M um, did not do a good job um, paying attention to the uh, hazardous nature of those uh, chemicals uh, and uh, safely uh, storing them and, and cleaning up after uh, the manufacturer and, and what has led to uh, contaminated water in these uh, East Metro communities. And for that matter, really the, the entire world has, has now been apparently um, contaminated with these chemicals uh, which, as you say, they're called forever, forever chemicals because they, they just don't break down the environment. Um, and so um, it all started here, <laughs> unfortunately, and and I think there's a number of legislators who want to take, to see that uh, as a, something that we need to be responsible for here in Minnesota. And so there, uh, there's a number of measures in that bill uh, to curb the use of uh, these this class of chemicals um, except where absolutely necessary, it would give quite a bit of um, uh, authority to the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency uh, to create rules. Um, and there's been a furious pushback from um, the, the chemical lobby. Uh, 3M has kind of stayed in the background, um, but uh, the trade associations and uh, big-time lobbyists from Washington have um, have been uh, spending a lot of time and money here in Minnesota to try to uh, beat back these uh, these bills, um, but pass the House, still have the Senate to go. Um, so a, a key moment as uh, Minnesota grapples with its uh, history of chemical contamination. Uh, the state attorney general in 2018 settled with 3M for 850 million dollars. That the money was supposed to provide clean water to those East Metro communities, um, but that 
didn't turn out to be the end of the story. Uh, and because these, I think we're just learning more about uh, how dangerous the chemicals are and how widespread they are um, in the environment, land, air, water, uh, soil, and human bodies and uh, wildlife. So um, it, it does seem like a, a, a key moment. So the other thing I want to mention is that the, a person who was, uh, we spent a lot of time with our reporter, Dina Winter, spent a lot of time with Amara Strand, Strand. Um, she's uh, suffered from uh, really debilitating cancer, um, went to Tartan High School, and, and I mean, the, we, we certainly fear that she was drinking contaminated water and that uh, she, among many others at Tartan High School, were, uh, suffered from cancer and various illnesses that seem um, very suspicious. And indeed, there's plenty, there's, there's uh, studies showing higher rates of cancer in these communities. Amara died, uh, unfortunately, uh, late last week. And so her family and, and supporters and friends were there outside the house chamber. Uh, and Dina was there to capture that. Uh, so a, a pretty, um, pretty emotional moment uh, for some folks at the Capitol yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys have done a great job reporting on that. So make sure you check out uh, some of those pieces that they've written on yeah, what's been ha- what happened to her over the years over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. A final piece of news I'd like to talk to you about has to do with uh, kind of a dust-up we had at the Capitol a couple of months ago with, uh, with the uh, DFL communications aide interacting with a, with a – uh, member of a MinPost, Peter Callahan. So what happened was is that a DFL communications aide accused Peter Callahan of being rude during a February 9th press conference where after reporters were told they'd be allowed one more question at the press conference, Callahan responded by saying, no, we can take several more questions. We're trying to understand this bill. After the news conference, House DFL spokesperson Matt Rosnowski threatened to call Callahan's editor, and Callahan responded with a profanity. After that, the House DFL responded by removing Callahan from its press email list, which alerts reporters to press conferences and statements. Callahan was then later added back to the pressed list. Now, the Minnesota Reformer was part of a number of uh, media organizations that signed on to a, a coalition of media organizations that sent a letter to House DFL leadership decrying the treatment of Callahan. So, uh, Patrick, I'm curious uh, what your response is to the story of what we've been hearing uh, of the treatment of Callahan back at that February 9th press conference. Well, I, I want to uh, just add to what you said, because it wasn't just that he was taken off the press list. They, they also wound up sending a letter to MinPost saying they had serious concerns about that, that Callahan had violated the, the, the House's harassment um, and discrimination policy. Um, and they also said they had alerted the Sergeant at Arms and Capitol Security. And so that, that was really our bigger concern, was that um, this idea that reporters are somehow bound by the House's HR policy um, and that they that they would inform capital security. Um, it's it's kind of menacing, really, when you think about it. And um, and so a number of media organizations, the reformer included, sent a letter. We had a there's a First Amendment lawyer uh, who sent a letter to the House saying, I mean, look, here's what happened, and we have serious concerns. 
um, about uh, the way that you treated Callahan and what it says about, you know, what you think about the First Amendment. Um, I think some of the background here is goes back to the events surrounding Me Too, which uh, were uh, played out at the, at the state capitol where a couple of lawmakers were uh, forced to resign um, because they'd been accused of uh, sexual harassment. And I don't think there's any question that uh, that around that time, you know, I was among the reporters talking to staff and lobbyists, and and there was a there was a, a widespread sense of impunity on the part of lawmakers that they could just treat people however they wanted, and, and that was unhealthy. It was an unhealthy workplace, and so the, the House, at House Speaker, at current Speaker uh, Melissa Hortman's urging, um, drafted this new HR policy. Um, and and I think creating a safe workplace is is a uh, an important goal um, for uh, people who are working in the public sphere. Um, however, the state capital is not like Target headquarters or something. It's not it's not a it's not a it's not a uh, workplace like that. Um, and, um, because you're also employing the First Amendment uh, and, and the rights that that are uh, conferred to us by the First Amendment of free speech and debate in the service of self-government. And so uh, this idea that uh, if I'm rude to you at a press conference, I can be accused of violating uh, House HR policy regarding harassment, even if it doesn't meet the statutory definition of harassment. And now somehow, what, I'm not allowed into the House chamber because I was rude to someone at a press conference? Um I think we can at least I see that as really problematic and um and I you know the latest is uh there was a uh, the the speaker sent out a statement last night that uh I'm not gonna call it an apology. That's not what it was, but it was um it definitely was a, quite a bit more deferential um than she had been last week and uh, so I think we are moving on here but there is always, I think, going to be that tension of, um, you know, the, the reality is that our job is oftentimes to ask rude questions um, and confrontational questions and adversarial questions. That's that's how it goes. Um, and, um, you know, it, and that, that might not work at a traditional workplace, but the state capital is, uh, is not a traditional workplace. Yeah, so you're mainly trying to draw that distinction that, yes, if this was a private employer, I, it might have a little more credence. But you're saying is that, yeah, as a First Amendment reporter, you, you kind of do have that right at, to free speech, freedom of the press to ask questions. And as you said, sometimes those will be a little more confrontational when you're trying to get an answer to a question for for uh, what you're reporting on. Yeah, I mean, and there's and there's a reason why people don't like the press. Um, and one of them is that we, we ask these nosy um, um, confrontational questions that people would rather uh, not be asked sometimes. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make, yeah, is, is that is that distinction that is a First Amendment issue when you are talking about uh, freedom of the press. So it's an important aspect to bring when we're uh, talking about that dust-up that happened a few months ago uh, back in February. Well, we are just about out of time right now as we have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Uh, make sure you find more about what they write over at minnesotareformer.com. That's minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure.
take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil here on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.